If they move, kill them. Hello and welcome to Film Ireland Podcast with Paul Farron and I have Wayne Byrne here with me and we're discussing The Wild Bunch. 50 years old and probably still as relevant as it ever was. Still as vital, still as violent as ever. So we both watched this film, for, especially for this podcast, which was a good idea. Where does it, How does it feel after seeing it as a child, Wayne? Well, yeah, I did see it as a child. It was one of the first films I owned on VHS. Um, I remember buying it in Virgin Megastore on the Keys, I think it was. And when I brought it to the counter, the girl said, I'm sorry, this is 18, you can't have this. And the guy beside her looked at her and said, listen, you can spend his money on worse things. So she let me have it. But I, little did I realise, you know, because I was so used to Stagecoach, Fort Apache, John Wayne Westerns, because that's what my, my dad introduced me to. It was probably the first genre I remember as a child was the Western. But when I brought it home and I watched it, I was completely blown away by this masterpiece. You know, it was a work of art. It wasn't just your typical odor, you know what I mean? Or your, your standard kind of um, conventional Western. Well, let's get into context different. here for our listeners. So they, I mean, hopefully people who are uh, listening know the film. And if you don't, it'd be a good idea if you went and watched it. But up until that point, we would call it the traditional Western, good guys, bad guys. Yeah. And that was it. What were the significant things that, Sam, Sam Peckinpah, the director, did that turned the genre on its head? Well, for me, it's, it's the aesthetics of the film and also the violence. But that can, you know, they're, they're hand in hand because the, the editing and the... It was a new form of action cinema, you know, that I wasn't used I was probably used to it in terms of movies at that time, you know, the likes of John Woo and the big action spectacles. But to be looking at a film from the 60s, which were as, was as exciting, as kinetic, as... Hard Boiled and Hard Target and all these films, you know what I mean? It was it blew my mind and it made me want to investigate A, Sam Peckinpah further and B, Westerns of that period, which is what we're talking about today. As you said, the aesthetically, it uh, introduced slow motion, which doesn't seem like a big thing to people watching films on a regular basis today because they see it all the time. But it was uh, quite, a, quite a traumatic one for a lot of audiences as well at the time. Well, it would have been... Um, you know, Easy or not Easy Rider, uh, Bonnie and Clyde had come out, was made in 1967, but it hadn't really been re-released until 1969. And that was a film which, you know, shocked a lot of people for its violence. But in, in Bonnie and Clyde, it's, there's one, not even 30 second sequence near the end where they're, they're killed. And that is the kind of editing which we see in The Wild Bunch. But instead of 30 seconds in The Wild Bunch, it's 10 minutes long. You know what I mean? This whole massacre at the start of the film and a massacre at the end of the film. And it takes that kind of kineticism, that, that juxtaposition of fast editing, slow-mo, sped-up shots, all the you know cuts to rhythm on the squibs and the bullets and everything. And it was just this, if you want to be pretentious about it, it's a ballet of violence. You know, it's what, what people would associate with John Woo years later. But there it is in 1969. And of course, it would have been new and shocking and, you know, caused the censors some sleepless nights. And what was the response for the film at that time? I think people who love movies, critics and people who are, you know, genuine film enthusiasts recognise the masterpiece. I think it was one of the producers, one of the people who worked on it said when they finished, when they screened the, the final cut, he said, I think I've just helped hang a Rembrandt. And that says a lot about the film, you know, the, the value of the film, the, the quality of the film coming from people who were in the industry 
and were proper film buffs. Let's talk a little bit about Peckinpah's career <clears throat> up until before that. So he started out in, uh, I think he started as a dialogue coach with the mm. like the Don Siegel. Yeah. Going back first back as Invasion Body Snatchers. Then he worked in Westerns. Um, the main Westerns were The Westerner, I think. Westerner was his series, yeah. Uh, what, what, tell, tell us a bit, did, bit about did that. He, did he work on The Rifleman? Well. The Rifleman was one he did as well. Yeah, a few other bits. But I think it was the Westerner led up to Deadly Companions, which was his debut film. That was Brian as, as Keaton, Brian uh, Hara. Yeah, which is more, I guess, uh, you know, sedate, peck and path. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the new Hollywood at that point, so he was still working within the realm of the conventional Western. But it's an interesting, it's a curiosity, I guess, for... Well, as a personality, nihilism crept into his work very early on. Uh, and when I say nihilism, not the uh, uh, pure doom, more like a Valhalla Viking doom in, yeah. in, in old westerns. So his next significant rest western is Ride the High Country with yeah. Joel McRae and Randolph Scott, which is this eulogy to the old west. You know what I mean? It's um, Joel McRae and Randolph Scott who are these great figures of the old conventional westerns of the thirties, forties, fifties, early sixties. And you know, it's he's saying goodbye to the. To the old western, I think, in many ways. Again, the teams for the Wild Bunch are already yeah all over that yeah. film. And again, a more it, it's it, it's a more sedate peck and pa, as in it's a quieter film, a gentler film, but still a, a very good film and good meditation on that whole end of the western, end of the west, changing America kind of thing. As I said, William Holden, who plays Pike Bishop, the main and uh, protagonist antagonist yeah. of the Wild Bunch, <laughs> the could easily be played by Joel McRae. Yeah. Is but there any the, heroes in the Wild Bunch? I don't think there is. <laughs> well, that's the thing. That's, that was, to me, is the huge thing that he did with the storytelling. That it, Essentially, just to go back, it's a, a film about a bunch of outlaws who are being chased down by the railroad, being also chased down by one of their... an ex-member of the bunch, played by Robert Ryan, yep. who... Dick Thornton, I think his name is in the yeah, film, who uh, feels he's been let down by Pike, who essentially were... You know, a big bromance oh, yeah. until one got caught yeah. in a bordello. Uh, but they go from one extreme to the next extreme. It's all about that one last job. Yet they kept get they get pulled into a their amorality gets turned on its head a little bit when they start finding a something to fight for yeah. through a newer member of the group called Angel, a Mexican. Yeah. So that's where the kind of morality creeps into it, but. You get the impression they don't care once they go out with a bang and yeah. not a whimper. But it's kind of a team that runs through Peck and Pals films, isn't it? Isn't it that there's there is a bromance there? There's this old code of honor that's tested somewhere along the way, or there's a betrayal, and it's how they reconcile that or don't reconcile. So, Ride the High Country was how many years before that? That there was th- Ride the High Country. Uh, God, sixty two. I'm thinking. And then I, I don't think he didn't have another Western until, I mean, Major Dundee came in. Uh, Major Dundee was a bit of a folly in terms of, you know, it was his attempt at a big studio epic, but just didn't, I don't think he was ready for that that kind of film at that stage in his career. Not until the Wild Bunch, you know, proved that he could do it on his own terms. Yeah. Uh, still some interesting ideas in there. And again, Beckham proved he brought a lot of symbolism to his Westerns. And we want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I think part of the symbolism com- is comes back to the use of editing as well. I think it's very important that the aesthetics of his films work so in tandem with the themes and the stories that you can't separate it. I mean, I, when I think of Peckinpah, you can't but not think of that style. You know what I mean? So it is odd when you come to something like The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which is completely different. I made a year slower, after The Wild Bunch. Yeah, a slower, gentler film. But you're ex- you go into it expecting... 
the next wild bunch almost. And I can imagine audiences at that stage were, were going into it like that as well because Peck and Pa had built kind of a name for himself, you know, the kind of the Hitchcock kind of thing, where he's selling himself it's a signature, it's a style. You know, a Peck and Pa film looks like this, it feels like this. But then you go into Ballad of Cable Hogue and it's the complete opposite. You know. Again, Ballad of Cable Hogue is a small story about a man who is lost in the desert after being uh, turned upon by his friends. He steals water and yeah. he manages to find water. Bowen and Taggart, who are played by LQ Jones and Strutter Martin. So, actors from previous... Well, it's another thing Peckinpah did was uh, most of his talented supporting actors were all from older westerns, anyway, yeah. including Ben Johnson as well. Who's yeah. uh, to, to, to look at the ta- the, the cast of uh, the Wild Bunch? We have William Holden, Ernest Borgnine, uh, Ben Johnson, Warren Oates, who would figure big in Peckinpah films down the line. Yeah. Uh, most notably, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which is. I would say one of his best. But, but uh, as you said, LQ Jones and Strother Martin, who'd been, again, I think LQ Jones can pick and pack and claim him, yeah. but Strother Martin had been oh, he's in, in, everything. In, in everybody's Western, <laughs> yeah. including another one that year, True Grit, which he played yeah. a very different role. And but, he was in Rooster Cogburn, actually, as well, playing a different That's role. right, yeah. yeah. He's the ferryman in that, I think. Which is kind of the thing that they do in, in Western back then, wasn't it? You could be in a series of films, but playing different characters. You know. But again, back to this nihilism and the, the politics of Peckinpah's work. Uh, what do you think he was as a personality? Or was he just out to make? It's you hear conflicting reports. I mean, a lot of people were loyal to him in terms of they wanted to work with him again and again because he was a brilliant artist. But a lot of people would say that he was a not a very nice human being. You know, kind of neglectful to his to his children and to his friends in the name of art, and quite demeaning to actors on the set. What he did sack some like thirty six crew members on the Ballad of Cable Hog. That's right. Yeah, I think I, I think he used to have his production manager. Somebody used to have a book of book bus tickets. So when he wanted to fire someone, he'd say, <laughs> "Hey, hey, Jim, you got the bus tickets? Give it to this man. Good luck." <laughs> so. So yeah, but he ran a tight ship, always fighting producers. And again, the Wild Bunch, though it was artistically appreciated in Europe, the same can't be said for in America. It got boulderized and yeah. recut <laughs> to ninety minutes long. Yeah, well, he d- he did fight to finish the film. Um, there was one of the head guys at Warner Brothers who was in his corner, and he was a champion. And he said, "Let the man finish the film. It's going to be something special." But when it come to the final edit, then of course that's a different thing because you know the censors obviously wouldn't have been happy with it. And it was just a bit out there, even for 1969, even though it was, it was the year of Easy Rider, but it was the and turning also, point. And classification know. changed then, they were more aware of younger viewers yeah. in a way they hadn't been for a while, in America yeah. anyway. Well, younger viewers, college kids and, and teenagers, they were the new audience. It wasn't, you know, everyone, man, power, staying at home, watching TV, you know. So it was changing times for Hollywood, changing times for cinema in America. And, you know, like I say, it was just at the, at the turning point. Of Easy Rider, so I hadn't quite gone into the you know the early seventies scene of where this was would have been more accepted, you know. So it was still there was still a little bit, bit of caution about it as a as a violent film. So w- w- do you think it's a political film? Uh, perhaps on the surface, but I don't think at the heart. No, I think it's it's a. I, I my own take on it is it's it's nihilistic in a very joyful fashion. Yeah. 
It's about looking for all the hedonism of uh, anything you can get your hands on. Spoils of war. It kind of punk before punk was fashionable. Yeah. <laughs> you can call the Wild West punkish. Yeah. I think it's the heart of Peckin Pass films, though, as always. It comes down to friendship. But let's compare them, though, too. So we've got Wild Bunch comes out in 69, Ballad of Cable Hogue, a much gentler film mm-hmm. with a few moments of violence, but it's not about that. But they're still both nihilistic films. They have a certain kind yeah. of... Uh, do the best by your life. It's all you're all doomed in the end. Yeah. But it's probably the one film where you could say a Pe- Sam Peckinpah film has heart because it has a lot of heart. I think even when you look at the the whole conflict resolution thing of you know um, Jason Robards, he, Cable Hogue, he's betrayed by his you know partners in crime, whatever, and he says, "I'm gonna piss on your grave when I when I catch up with you." But then come the end of the film. You know, there's this, there's a sweetness. I won't give it away. But well, well, let's. Uh, no, nah, we're we're here to give things away. By the way, everybody, okay. we're going to spoiler <laughs> the hell out of everything here. So, it, right. do go and watch these two films before yeah. you listen to this. Ballad of Cable Hogue. Uh, he finds a waterhole mm-hmm. and he manages to make some money out of it by selling water to people using the stagecoach yep. between two towns, the town of Gilla and somewhere else I cannot he remember. He found water where there was none. And the significance of the film is him becoming, finding civility through a prostitute from town played by Stella Stevens, who is probably the most, the sec- the most important character in the film yeah. besides uh, Robert's character yeah. of Cable. But back to what we we're saying, the, the nihilism that exists yeah. in The Wild Bunch is all violence. Yeah. The one in this is still a bit of man yeah, finding... And, I mean, it starts out, that film starts out as set up for a revenge story. And we think we're going to be getting, you know, that kind of peck and path film, but we don't, you know. And even the payoff at the end, the whole revenge motif comes back around. It's not paid off in what you would expect it to be. Because one of the one of the men whose grave he wants to piss on becomes almost his heir. Yes. You know? Well, no, he is his heir by the yeah. end of it. He, yeah. he, he sort of inherits the... Yeah. But again, it's a more complex film that is, like there's several readings of it. We were talking about this earlier. That there's a surreal reading that it could actually the whole thing could be a fantasy in his head as he's dying of thirst at the very start of the yeah. film. Because there's some very unique style of shots in there, which would suggest to me that there's a, a god's eye narration kind of overlooking this. And it's the scene where you know he, he's dying of the thirst and he, he's in the middle of this sandstorm, and we get this shot from above, which is a kind of fuzzy and hazy or gauzy or whatever it is they did back then but it suggests that we're you could almost say you're entering into a dream world you know without being so literal but it's at that moment then he f- he finds the water where there was none you know what i mean in this miraculous moment and there's also there's a lot of these kind of religious symbol symbolisms in there and with with wild bunch again to bring back into the notion of memory and flashbacks which it serves in a different structure uh, in the Wild Bunch, but the same idea of someone asking questions of who they are and why they're doing anything and mm. what they wanted, but are willing to accept what's going to happen to them. All of the car, but what both films have very similar as well is his acceptance of death at the very end. Yeah. Robard's acceptance is a bit different in that he gets run accidentally run yeah. over by a motor vehicle, which but are a new thing in the Wild West. Don't you find that it's done in such an unusual manner? It's not done in a melodramatic way. You know, he's not lying there after he's been been struck by the, the automobile, the symbol of change and modernity in America. Well, back to Peckinpah and his kind of interesting use of symbolism yeah. for uh, what was but, mainstream entertainment. Yeah, And there's no great melodramatic moment there. We don't even know that he's dying until someone says, are you okay? And he says, oh, got me, or something like that. You know what I mean? And he's basically saying, I'm dying. 
But everyone, everyone around him is saying, no, you're not, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And even to look at him, he's just lying there. You know, he's not in pain. He's not shouting in agony. But he just knows the end is nigh. And then they use this great kind of elliptical kind of structure where David Warner is giving a sermon, you know, to the funeral, to the eulogy. Just happens to be coming by on his motorbike. Yeah, but isn't it great the way that in the space of one line, it cuts from he's alive to he's dead, you know? And but that's they use that as a device throughout the film as well, where as a montage kind of device where they they cross time and space, even though it, 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 in a in a moment of dialogue, which but is a constant in those later Peckinpah films, is this joy of that moment of death. Yeah. It's something that Peckinpah seems to be is definitely obsessed yeah. with. Oh yeah, but definitely loves his characters do is face death with a big smile on their face. Yeah. I think it, you could say it happens in the Wild Bunch as well. Yeah, They're I think. Kinda, Smiling as they're on their way out. Oh, they're cackling almost with glee. You know, we're, we're about to be part of this great yeah. massacre. Yeah. I, I suppose the most unusual death in a Peckinpah film is Cable Hoax because he dies yeah. in a bed. But isn't it great as well the way he he wants to be part of his funeral service? He wants to hear what people have to say about him. You yeah, know? Everybody's dream, isn't it, to be at their own funeral? <laughs> what are they going to say about me? But then he says, don't hold back. Rather than being you know? an empty husk. Yeah. <laughs> Tell the congregation I was a son of a bitch. Not, what is this, it's not the few, what we worry about is what people are going to say about us after we're dead. Yeah. He gets to hear it while he's still alive. Yeah. So, other aspects of those two films, well, by the way, which one, one would you have a preference of, of those two movies? I love them both, but for different reasons. But I, I would say, objectively speaking, The Wild Bunch is a masterpiece. I think it just is. It's a masterpiece of American cinema as a Western, as a, a piece of new Hollywood, just as a piece of art. It's just amazing. Now, Cable, Cable Hogue, I absolutely adore anyway, but I don't think it's at that and level. Interesting to note that it said Wild Bunch did make money, but it wasn't the huge breakout hit that they accept, expected. No. And that in turn had an effect on the distribution for Cable Hogue, which is, is as again, yeah. our producer here, Steve, hadn't seen it and he's got a good eye on the, on the movies yeah. I know a lot of people who actually miss that as a Peckinpah movie and they would call themselves Peckinpah well, well, fans Peckinpah considered that his best work you know when he used to do his uh, speaking engagements at colleges universities he encouraged them to show he was sober enough to talk at colleges <laughs> well show the film anyway you know <laughs> I don't know if he talked too much but when he did he wanted them to show Cable Hogue because that he felt represented him at his best uh, auteur or collaborator Oh, absolutely, collaborator. But, you know, again, he's the ultimate auteur in terms of when you think of, as I said, think of Peckinpah, you think of a certain style, you think of certain teams, and you just think of the general form of a Peckinpah film. But he would be nothing, I don't think, without the likes of Lou Lombardo, his great editor on some films, and Lucian Ballard, his cinematographer on some films, because they are as important to the overall feel of those films as Peckinpah is, you know? Yeah, as you said, like, I mean, the, the undertaking to shoot those scenes especially in the final one sorry beginning of the final one was huge I mean I don't think anyone had used that many, many camera setups in a kind of film like that before no, no. Like, so it was like six camera setups per actual be a, scene a very complex scene I, to film I think that the final massacre took something like three or four weeks to shoot yeah and as I said for what ends up being a 10 to 15 minute sequence like if you look at the amount of cuts in that film just think of the amount of setups different camera setups that would have been involved in that it's just a huge undertaking and uh, yeah that level of continuity is crazy but yeah as you say the collaborator but definitely I I think again the author argument is a funny one but very personal filmmaker 
His, his the, the man's attitude is all over his films. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Would it be the gentleness of Cable yeah. or the violence of the Wild Bunch? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of films where it's a little watered down, perhaps. You know, Deadly Companions because he hadn't quite become Sam Peckinpah. The, the that was a Maury. That was a Maury Nahara film. She produced that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's very conventional. I think overall speaking, um, if Convoy. Any of the Osterman Weekend, which yeah. I love, you know, I, I enjoy these films, but they're not they're peck and pa, not firing on all cylinders. I think. Uh, yeah, well, because he was was totally drunk by then. Oh yeah. Well, right. we haven't mentioned Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. That's right. Yeah, and the Getaway um, and Alfredo Garcia and all these but, great. But films. no, but like the, I mean, you could argue that Garcia is a western as well, even though yeah. it's a contemporary western. But uh, if it was a trilogy to pull together, it would be Wild Bunch, Cable Hogue, and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Yeah. I think Cable Hogue kind of links the two of them in terms of um, Packard and Billy the Kid has that kind of um, mournful tone to it as well throughout but it also has those moments of, of that great action in there so I think yeah it also has two two great lovers in Packard and Billy the Kid Again, out, yeah. out to kill each other yeah. and yet they love each other going back to that and Robert Ryan in The Wild Bunch he's out to get William Holden because he can't forgive him for what leaving them to get caught Yeah, but he loves the man yeah and there's a line he has in the film where he says, I wish I was with them right now. Because <laughs> uh, it's about... The... See, there's this interesting thing where uh, we first meet the wild bunch of soldiers. Yeah. So there's a symbol of respectability of the military of order. Yeah. Then we realise there's these lunatic bank robbers. And then we realise within that there's factions. Yeah. And then later on, we also realise very quickly that they're being chased down by absolute scumbags and bounty hunters. Yeah. LQ Jones, as you mentioned, and Slaughter Martin being the worst of them. Yeah, really and nice. also, there's a very, very interesting little moments in the plot where you realise that Strother Martin and LQ Jones are the cause of half the violence in the film. Yeah. That happens at the start. They're the ones that get caught because their yeah. guns are waving oh, up yeah. over, just, over the rooftops. They're absolute vultures. Like, you know. uh, and uh, I, I've forgotten that they actually get killed at the end. Yeah. Because we never get to see their deaths. We oh. just, we're just told that yeah. they've been killed because yeah. uh, Edmund O'Brien and the Mexican posse have got their hands yeah. on them. But this thing of, uh, he really sees these outlaws being more noble than the actual real military characters and the vulture characters. They're the only ones with integrity yeah. because they look after each other and they've got their loyalty to their own. Yeah. And that's a big thing with Peck and Pat. Yeah, he never really drew kind of clear, clear divide between good and bad, no matter who they were, whether they were... Cops or military. Yeah, I or, mean, let's face it, a few controversial moments in it that, like, where Angel shoots his ex girlfriend because she's with the guy Mapachi. Yeah. And I just kind of, it, it's not thrown away, though. A lot of people who would argue that there's a misogyny to pick up, I don't agree that it's that straightforward, that simplistic an idea. Because there's a really interesting scene with the funeral that the men are kind of abhorred by mm. because they should be. Because yeah. there's something terrible has happened, and the women are bringing this procession through all the maleness, and where they're all plotting the next yeah. horrible thing they're going to do. But we're reminded that this poor woman has been killed because she yeah. made that choice. But isn't Stella Stevens such a great character? In well, see, there you get it. Yeah, because she humanizes Robard's character, who's out for violence and revenge. Yeah. Now it's interesting the way he he introduces her as this more purient object to um, to Jason yes. Robards, to Cable mm-hmm. Hogue. And it, you know, it's it's funny the way the film uses comedy there. You know what I mean? It it kind of breaks the sleeve somewhat. Did a Benny Hill sped up film and. Um, well, he used that most of it. There's a character played by David Warner as a a self made preacher called Joshua, who seems <laughs> he wants the uh, monopoly on looking after fallen women. <laughs> 
and in order to make them fall more, I think. But yeah, he has his own weird logic. Yeah. But yeah, tell us more about Stella Stevens. <laughs> well, she's introduced as she's, she's playing a prostitute, and she's introduced basically by he's zoom. The word is never used. I don't think. No, no. I think she's a businesswoman. Oh well, there you go. Yeah. It's all, so don't forget, that it's all about money, and he doesn't pay up at the start. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. That's how he doesn't he hurt her at some stage in the film where he says, "Well, you never charge me." You know, and that's the cause of their kind of great breakup in the film before they come back together at the end. No, no. You see, what happens is actually, to my mind, to my memory, is that he it suddenly gets he, he leaves his water hole to come in and make a claim, mm. and then he finds he falls in lust with Stella. Mm. They are, she gives him a good scrubbing, wash the dirt off him. He loves having people getting washed, you know, yeah. after <laughs> being in the desert for a long time. And he reciprocates that. And yeah. they're in the middle of making love. They don't actually seal the deal, but she wants payment anyway, and he yeah. doesn't have any money, and he has to go back, come back for her. Yeah. And he breaks, she breaks her chamber pot. That's a beautiful moment, actually. I thought it was one of the funniest and sweetest moments where he comes back with a replacement chamber pot. Yeah. I mean, if ever there was a... An acknowledgement of a marriage, that's yeah. it. <laughs> but going into that film cold, you might be a bit surprised when you see those those shots of the zoom into the cleavage and all they're short of is a slide whistle, you know. Yeah, you stay for the end and it'll, <laughs> it'll make more sense Yeah, you. absolutely. And you yeah. understand the humanity of and it. And that, I can imagine, you know, um, going into that film at that time, as I say, if you if you you associate Peckinpah with certain types of films and you go into that film and it's it's gentle, it's, it's body, it's a bit ribald, you know what I mean? And it has all these little moments of comedy and the sped up film, you know what I mean? We're going back to editing and all that. Um, there's a lot of sped up film in there to kind of move things along briskly in a kind of comic manner. And the, the, the score reflects that, you know, but then it turns and it turns into this very kind of sorrowful and meaningful and beautiful, tender film. I mean, you have to give it a couple of goes. I think even, even I, first few times I saw it, I was a little bit, not put off by it, but I just didn't feel pecking pan enough for me. Do you do you think that the late sixties and the seventies, the pacing can be handled by people who are watching cinema now? Do people want to watch films more than once anymore? Well, like, are they able to treat a, a film like like a song well, we where in, you go and you listen to it again before you you realize something about it? Yeah, well, I think we live in the age now of Netflix, isn't it? You know, if you don't like the film within the first five minutes, you turn it off. So. I think that was great about the VHS era because, you know, you spent your one pound fifty to get your film. You're going to like this You're, you're going to watch it. You know, you mean you have it for that one night, but you're going to watch it to death, especially if you like it. But at least you could give it a second chance. Nowadays, it's that ah, don't like it. Switch. You know what I mean? So maybe we don't have that or certain people don't have that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think those films do require more than uh, one viewing. And uh, as we were, we were talking about, even the opening sequence or the opening scene, not sequence when we introduce the soldiers in Wild Bunch it has all that inherent that symbolism that is inherent of Peckinpah's yeah. style that might be heavy handed to some mm. you know symbolism is dangerous in films it's very hard to do well it was the, the, the era of Vietnam and all that and this whole socio-political change in American society and the new Hollywood to a degree reflected that you know what I mean because the films were coming in more meaningful and more reflecting society even if on an allegorical basis if the, uh, well they were getting Vietnam on the televisions weren't they I yeah mean, it was probably you're probably getting less actual coverage of war at the moment when I mean, it's quite prolific yeah than you were getting in Vietnam at the time because the the freedom of the press was a bit more apparent than it is today yeah well I guess you know what you're seeing in the cinema and some of these films were was a reflection of what you were seeing on the TV you know these images coming back from Vietnam so in a way cinema had to kind of change you know what I mean? Because they couldn't keep it that so old thing. Do you think Peckinpah in, was 
everyone talks about this debt of the Western at the end of the 70s where, again, it hasn't died. It's always going to be existing. I mean, mm. do, you, do you think he did help put that nail on the coffin? Well, I think he did. I don't know if he did it consciously. Or do you think it was just going to happen anyway? Yeah. I mean, the, I think, well, yeah. The, the I mean, values that, that kept the, the Western alive, which came out of dime store novels mm. at the turn of the West and then yeah. cinema. I mean, I think uh, cinema is what is what created yeah. the great mythology we know of, of Westerns anyway. I think it would have happened anyway because I think all genres were changing with the times. You yeah, know what I mean? The, the values and the understanding of what uh, America had done in the, in the West and it's, the blood in its own hands was a bit yeah. different. So that changed, as we said, the style of the Westerns yeah. and what the Western was trying to say. Well, I think he, he, he did. I think the Wild Ones did change it irrevocably anyway. You know, but whether he set out to do that, I'm not too sure. In terms of the style of the film, in terms of aesthetically speaking, I don't know if he, if he intended to do that. You know, I think probably highly influenced by Bonnie and Clyde and whatever else was going on around that time, Easy Rider, and where the aesthetics of film were changing, of mainstream cinema. Because these were all mainstream studio films. You have to remember, they weren't kind of left-field indie movies. You know, and when the studios got a whiff of... Kind of left-field indie didn't really exist. It was like exploitation movies. It'd be, it'd be the underground. Like you know, the underground New York scene yeah, would have been the kind of the, saying, yeah. the indie version back then. But, you know, when, when the studio saw Easy Rider turn a huge profit on a minimal budget, you know what I mean? They were a bit more willing to approach more difficult... Or, well, that was the same year as uh, was, Wild Bunch. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think, yeah, but you also have to remember the Spaghetti Westerns were doing things a bit differently before the Wild Bunch as well. So, yeah, we were talking earlier. It's just something we forgot to mention. Start was that it started in Europe and then fed back to America in a way. So yeah. that kind of amoral kind of character was coming out of a European, out of Italian cinema. Yeah, and yeah. just again the different aesthetics of the the Italians that European cinema was antithetical to the the American stuff. You know what I mean? This the way Leone would would frame characters. And edit pieces, you know, rhythmically to music and all that it was so different to what was going on in Hollywood, and I imagine a huge influence. So was it was yeah? It is interesting. He kind of went full circle. That he had a certain grittiness, but mm. then he went all the way to get to Dead Valley and and give us a Fordian type yeah. style mixed in with that Italian yeah. style for but Once Upon a Time in the West. Perhaps deep down he wanted to be one of those grand old studio directors in Hollywood. Do you know what I mean? Because well, you see, it goes back to the thing that all his movies were based on movies anyway. It's kind of a known that the likes of Bud Boetica was a huge influence on yeah. uh, on his work. Oh yeah, and and also uh, on Peckinpah. But yeah. again, Peckinpah was at the height of the television western and understand yeah. that dynamic and that storytelling from the start. Yeah. It comes around like that. I mean, if you look at the French New Wave, those guys were influenced by the Hollywood studio system, but they were doing things completely different, which then influenced the likes of the the independent scene in America. You know what I mean? So it's it has this weird cross effect going on. These guys are influenced by studio movies but then it influences indie movies left field indie movies you know so so the, the legacy of Wild Bunch what I think is the most interesting thing it, it kind of left us with action cinema Chain, okay. I think action cinema especially with the likes of Walter Hill and John Woo guys like that who really picked up on this style that like Peckinpah and Lou Lombardo and I mentioned Lou Lombardo because he's so important to this style and to action cinema and his influence. But I think, yeah, action cinema would be completely different without The Wild Bunch. You know, just look at any John Woo film and it's it's The Wild Bunch, you know. Uh, um, I hear it's being remade. Right. By Mel Gibson. Is that a yay or a nay? I think yay. Yeah. You know, I can, I can see him as one of those craggy, hard-bitten characters. 
And I don't think he's afraid of the violence. I think he'd, <laughs> he'd go for it. There'd be crucifixions all over the place. <laughs> exactly. And he'd probably do it on his own terms. He doesn't seem to give much of a crap about the studios these days. These days, I think he'll just go and do it according to how he wants to. Any final words on Peck and Paz's stamp on the, on the film business? Um, Jesus, I think he's... You mentioned earlier on about would anybody want to watch these again? Just go and watch them the first time, for God's sake. Because you think of... Younger people might think of 60 Cinema and go, oh God, that's an old movie. Sure, they probably think of Point Break as an old movie these days. But you know what I mean? It's... Watch it, and it feels so fresh. It feels so new and vital. As I say, vital and violent. Because it's just... It could be... It could be a new film. Put John Woo's name on it. That's how old I am. Jesus Christ. <laughs> John who? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, but yeah, just go and watch the films. Thank you, Sam, for all the films, and thank you, Wayne, for coming in and talking about Sam Peckinpah tonight. Well, thanks for having me, and I look forward to coming back and talking about some more westerns. Excellent. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>